Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life and now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you all for our first episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. And of course, as with every week, I'm here with Tony Abbott, the 28th Prime Minister of Australia, community leader, family man, and of course, now a distinguished fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. Tony, so good to be with you. Daniel, nice to be with you and our listeners. And I'm sure we'll have a good talk. We'll have a very good talk and there is a lot to talk about. We're facing a lot of challenges to our country at the moment. Tony, I thought we could start with some general reflections and assessments that you may have on what has happened in Australia over the past 18 months. Of course, you're formerly a a health minister for four years under the Howard government and you've had the opportunity recently to travel in your capacity as a trade envoy to India and an advisor to the United Kingdom on trade matters there. Let's start with what has happened to Australia over the past 18 months? What do you bring to that observation? I think it's been a very trying time for Australians. It's been a very trying time for people all over the world. Uh, The pandemic has been completely unprecedented in the lifetimes of any of us. And I think all governments have struggled with getting the balance right between keeping us safe and keeping life going. Now, obviously, the Australian government collectively has been pretty good at keeping us safe. Uh, We've had far fewer deaths from COVID than just about any other country. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, it has been at a very considerable cost to the way we've actually lived. And I guess uh, the slightly frustrating thing for so many Australians right now is that just at a time when we are seeing other countries opening up, largely thanks to vaccines, uh, we are locked in this uh, pretty much interminable <clears throat> cycle of, uh, of lockdowns. Now, uh, to his great credit, the Prime Minister has persuaded the National Cabinet to uh, substantially reopen when we get to 70% vaccination and to very substantially reopen when we get to 80% vaccination. But nevertheless, that's uh, still probably five or six or more months away. And uh, uh, the light is at the end of a very long tunnel. Um, I know there's a sense in which we just have to grit our teeth and get on with it. Uh, But I'm certainly uh, rather attracted to the idea of New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian that we might be able to start to open up sooner uh, when vaccination rates get up to about 50 percent. We are starting to see some positive signs moving away from getting rid of the virus 
to being able to live with the virus. In addition to what uh, you've just said about the Berejiklian government, there was a news report today in The Age uh, by David Crow, who's the chief political correspondent uh, with The Age, and he noted that uh, some business leaders and Liberal MPs believe it was no longer possible to reduce case numbers uh, to zero, uh, one of whom was Liberal MP Jason uh, Felinski, uh, who represents McKellar on Sydney's northern beaches. And he said that the whole point, and this is what you've just said, Tony, the whole point of the vaccination program is not to get rid of COVID-19, but to live with COVID-19. How important is it in your view, Tony, that we just have to accept that there's always going to be risk in life and at some level we just have to get on with it? We run risks all the time. Every time we get in the car, we're running a risk. Every time we get on a bike, we're running a risk. Every time we go out for a surf, we're running a risk. Now, uh, plainly, we don't want to run silly risks. And obviously, government has a responsibility to try to ensure that systems are as safe as possible. But in the end, we have to live life Uh, And we can't be so risk averse that we don't live life and live it to the full. And there have been many times over the last 18 months when I've wondered whether we have in fact got that balance right. Um, Safety first is uh, sometimes a pretty dispiriting dictum. No, it's such an important point. The federal government has largely ruled out introducing any federal legislation to make uh, vaccinations mandatory. Both the Prime Minister and the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, have made that reasonably clear. And what that basically means is this will end up being decided probably in the courts. So it appears mm. that it's, uh, an, it's an unclear area as to whether or not employers could legally require staff um, to be vaccinated. Um, do you think this is something that should be resolved primarily in the court system? Should it be resolved by regulation or legislation? Or is it something that Australians uh, should just be able to uh, undertake as they see fit? Uh, to be honest, uh, I think too much is decided in courts these days by unaccountable and unelected judges. Um, I'd probably prefer to see uh, more being decided uh, in our parliaments by people who are elected and are accountable and will face the judgment of the people uh, every three or four years. So so my instinct would be to have more clarity from government uh, unless that ends up in the hands of uh, a disparate group of judges and officials. The issue of, of clarity and leadership, I think, is very important uh, because what we have seen Over the past 18 months, I think it would be fair to say it's a constant shifting of the goalposts as to what constitutes success and as to what constitutes a reasonable grounds to implement um, various health restrictions. We started off, of course, with the idea of shifting the curve or flattening the curve so as to secure adequate medical capacity, which I think was a a fairly reasonable Mm -hmm. approach to take at the time. And then we moved to virus suppression and then virus elimination and then it was about protecting the elderly and then it was about waiting until we had a vaccine and so the goalposts seem to be continually shifted based upon we're told the health advice or the advice of the medical experts but so little of that advice is made transparent and public and I think regardless of what one's views are on on COVID or vaccinations and the restrictions one thing that has frustrated Australians I think has been the lack of transparency and consistency um, over the past 18 months. Would you share those views? 
Well, Daniel, two points. First of all, let's not underestimate uh, the difficulty of dealing with something which is completely unprecedented. And let's not underestimate the pressure that would have been on governments, decision makers at every level uh, back in early March last year. So, so I want to make that statement up front. But then I want to say that um, it is important that at any one time you do know what you are trying to do and why you are trying to do it and you've got to take the public into your confidence. Um, government in the end is a trust uh, between leaders and led and uh, I have personally found it a little irksome that so much that is so out of character has been asked of us on the basis of health advice in inverted commas uh, that we are asked to take entirely on trust, which has almost never been published. And while as a former health minister, I tend to put uh, uh, our medical experts on a bit of a pedestal, uh, they're not infallible. And certainly over the course of this whole pandemic, uh, the science, in inverted commas, has shifted from day to day uh, and it's been different from state to state. And that's why it would have been better for all of us, I think, if there had been more transparency and if more of it had been published at the time. Now, uh, all of this is now, uh, in a sense, dirty water under the bridge. Uh, it is what it is. We are where we are. And I do hope that at the end of this process, rather than just saying, well, thank God that's over and, and just wanting to forget about it, uh, there will be a serious inquiry, um, a Royal Commission, if you like, at the national level to look long and hard at what we did right, uh, what we could have done better uh, and compare uh, the responses of different states and indeed the responses of different countries because there will be another pandemic. It might be in a year, it might be in a decade, it might be in a century, but there will be another pandemic and it's important that our successes have the benefit of our considered reflections on what's gone right and what's gone wrong in this one. To that I would just add and, and like to get your thoughts and reflections on this, uh, Tony, before we move on to another topic, which is an issue that I know a lot of members of the Institute of Public Affairs have been very interested in and exercised about, uh, which has been not just perhaps the at times opaque nature of the of the health advice, but the fact that many of those who are implementing lockdowns and recommending lockdowns are often not the same people that are incurring the costs of those uh, policies, the, the politicians, uh, bureaucrats, uh, many of those in the media are in relatively safe jobs on pretty good wages. Uh, we know, for example, that over the past year, wages and jobs in the public sector have increased, whereas wages and jobs in the private sector have decreased. And it's been primarily small business owners and the self-employed that have incurred the most significant costs of the lockdowns. Um, I think that that has created a sense that we're very divided um, as a nation. We had this concept is this trope that we're all in this together when plainly many of us were incurring costs at a much greater level than others. Um, do you think that that division in our society has reduced 
the trust that Australians have in, in the political class and in some of the commanding institutions of our society? Well, again, Daniel, I think it's important to try to understand the difficulties that the politicians are operating under. Um, they have imperfect knowledge. Uh, they're under a great deal of pressure. And there's a sense in which they're damned if they do and they're damned if, they're done, if they don't. Uh, that said, um, I do think it great sometimes when people who are absolutely manically busy uh, tell everyone else to do absolutely nothing at all. And it does great sometimes when uh, people whose uh, own jobs are entirely secure uh, tell people in insecure jobs that uh, for their own good, uh, their jobs have got to become even less secure. So this has been an extremely difficult time for everyone, but I've got to say that uh, a lot of people uh, have felt like they've been reduced to bit players in their own lives uh, as a result of decisions being made by others who are not in the same boat that they're in. Of course, you've continued to be very active in your commentary, most recently uh, in a significant um, story that was covered on the front page of The Australian on Monday of this week. Uh, relating to an article you had written about China, about India, about the future of the global order and how important India will be um, as a democracy and as a linchpin of the future of the free world um, in the West. You've essentially argued that we need to be, strategically speaking, pivoting away from our reliance on China and India provides a very good opportunity uh, for where we might repivot and refocus our economic political and cultural energies on. Um, do you want to explain why this is such a big issue for Australia at the moment? Well, Daniel, there are two great concerns that all of us have uh, and which governments have to be uh, dealing with all the time, uh, prosperity and security. Now, obviously, uh, for several decades now, China has been an important part of Australia's prosperity because we've increased more and more our exports and we've also been getting back a lot of high-quality, relatively low-cost imports uh, from China. Uh, the difficulty is that um, China is still a party state. Uh, we were optimistic for years that greater economic freedom would eventually lead to at least a measure of political freedom uh, and that the um, antagonism, if you like, the systemic antagonism uh, between communism and liberal pluralism uh, would ease as communism evolved more in our direction. Um, what's become absolutely crystal clear in the last few years is that for the Beijing government, um, economic freedom uh, was not a precursor to political freedom too. It was simply a means to strengthen the party state uh, against its uh, opponents. So, so we've now got a, a problem. Uh, so much of our prosperity has been based on trade with China, which is now subject to a whole lot of uh, capricious and arbitrary restrictions. And so much of our security 
has been based on assumptions of an increasingly benign region, which can no longer be taken for granted. So we need to diversify our trade. Uh, we need to find uh, uh, stronger friendships and alliances uh, to ensure that uh, the peace is kept because um, when any one country becomes uh, vastly stronger than the rest, the temptation obviously is to take more than it has any right to. So this is where India is extremely significant. And when you think of it, uh, we have uh, in common with India, uh, democracy, the rule of law, uh, to some extent, the English language and considerable elements of shared history. Um, I think there's a potential for us to have a almost a family relationship with India, which uh, was probably never as likely with China. So let's do everything we can as quickly as possible to build on this. Uh, when I was Prime Minister, I was determined to conclude a swift and comprehensive trade deal with India. For all sorts of reasons, the momentum stalled uh, after I left office. Well, I know Scott Morrison and Dan Tian uh, are keen to get this up and running and Frankly, I was thrilled to be asked to go to India as an envoy to do what I could to make sure things were getting back on track. Uh, I know Dan Tian has an excellent relationship with his Indian counterpart, Piyush Goyal. And I think the whole of the Indian system is very well disposed to Australia. Uh, so given this is potentially a golden moment, Let's make the most of it. With that, Tony, I thought that we could uh, round out this, I think, very important and interesting discussion with my favourite segment, and I hope it will soon become your uh, favourite segment, which is the uh, Tell Tony Abbott segment. Of course, this is the opportunity for all of our listeners to uh, ring up uh, and to talk with Tony, talk with myself, to have a discussion about the things that are on their minds, uh, questions they might have, the future of the country, the Olympics, sport, whatever it might be. Any question on any topic, nothing is, uh, nothing's off bars. And I will start with the first one, uh, which comes from Margaret, who is from Western Sydney. Here is Margaret's question. Hi, Tony. This is Margaret from Western Sydney. I'd be interested in your thoughts about why we have allowed health bureaucrats to have so much control over our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Well, when you're in unprecedented circumstances, uh, obviously you turn to people who you think might know more about it than you do uh, for help and guidance. Uh, obviously, if we're diagnosed with a serious illness, uh, we listen very, very, very intently to our doctors in the hope that they might be able to make it better for us. Now, uh, perfectly reasonable to... Uh, turn to the epidemiologists and the other health experts at the start of the pandemic. Uh, but in the end, as we know, um, expertise and judgment are not always the same. And uh, health experts can be just as fallible and indeed just as divided as the experts on any other topic. And this is where we elect governments to test all of the various expert opinions and to weigh all of the various claims against the national interest. And uh, there are times when I have myself uh, bridled a bit at the readiness of 
some of our premiers in particular uh, to uh, justify everything they've done, however harsh and unreasonable, on the basis of so-called health advice, which is never published. So I'm kind of with Margaret. Um, I think that it's important that we continue to live in a democracy, not a doctocracy, uh, because however much we respect the medical profession, and I certainly have a great deal of respect for the medical profession, in the end, it's the elected and the accountable politicians who should be in charge. Great, Margaret. Thank you for that fantastic question. As a reminder to our listeners, the hotline is 03 9946 4307. Dial in and leave your question for Tony. Tony, our, our final question, uh, a bit of a change of pace uh, in this question, is from Peter. Uh, from Newcastle. Peter, what did you want to ask Tony? Hi, Tony. This is Peter from Newcastle. Just a quick one from me. was wondering, did you watch much of the Olympics? And if you did, what were your highlights? Yes, I think sport's fantastic. I've played a lot of sport. Uh, I still try to get out on the bike, uh, get out on the surfboard. And I'm an ambassador for uh, one of the great handed charities, the International Sports Promotion Society. And I was doing a bit of work for ISPS uh, while I was in the United Kingdom. So I very much appreciate the power of sport. Uh, that said, uh, I was quite busy and I was on the road a lot and I was in multiple different time zones. So the only bits of the Olympics I actually saw uh, was the odd snippet on the news and the odd snippet in the newspapers. But nevertheless, I did get a strong sense of just how welcome the Olympics were for two reasons. First, because right around the world, uh, the Olympics this year uh, were a wonderful reminder that there is a normal life, quite aside from the pandemic. And second, for us in Australia, a reminder that, yes, we are one country. And I think that's often been lost sight of in the middle of this COVID state of origin uh, uh, conflict that we've seen so often between the states over the last 18 months. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on, Tony. There is a path to normalcy. I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. We are going through a lot of challenges, but we've had a lot of challenges before in Australia, and I think we've gotten through those challenges because of a commitment to our shared values, and I think those values are very much still a part of our way of life and who we are um, as a people. As we come out of this pandemic, I'm confident that things will continue to get better. So thank you very much for your time and your comments, Tony, and your analysis, and Thank you, of course, to all of our listeners tuning in to our first episode of the Australian Heartland. Daniel, two things. This too will pass and uh, we shall overcome. We shall indeed. Tony, thank you very much. Good on you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.